Well, from the moment that people could upload photos onto a global network of devices, the problem of narcissism has grown. Add, that, add to that the, uh, the convenience of selfie cameras and social media, and soon it's pretty much out of control. Suddenly, we all think that everything is about us and that everyone everywhere is talking about me. Our smartphones notify us when we're tagged in someone else's photo or when our story or post is liked. And as we get the vibrate, we get a shot of endorphin like a drug. As we feel important, as we feel like our self is being fed, our narcissistic addiction is being fueled. But even though some technology has distorted the way that we see the world and how we think the world looks at us. People have had narcissistic tendencies ever since creation. In fact, the term narcissism is literally as old as Jesus. In 8 AD, so when Jesus was only a few years old, a poet from Rome by the name of Ovid wrote a myth. And it was about a, a good-looking guy called Narcissus. And he fell in love with his reflection. And it's quite an interesting story if you want to go and check it out yourself. But pretty much ever since then, his name has been attached to people who really love themselves a lot. So what's the answer? Is it to hate ourselves and hate our reflection and loathe our... Well, don't think so. After all, we know that we are fearfully and wonderfully made by God, Psalm 139, where we read that his works are wonderful. And so if he thinks that way of us, it's right for us to think that way of ourselves as well. Ultimately, the, the best way for us to deal with an unhealthy self-image is to look at Jesus and to set our hearts and minds on things above where he is seated, Colossians 3. But the problem for many at the moment is that we, well, we think too much about ourselves. By nature, we put ourselves at the centre of the universe and we push God and others out. And by nature, it's all about me. And today, as we look at Matthew chapter 18, we see how narcissism or that unhelpfully large love for ourselves that this is on a collision course with the kingdom of heaven. Narcissism is incompatible with life in the kingdom that Jesus rules because... It stands in opposition to the humility that Jesus taught and lived. All this starts with a very jarring question to kick us off in chapter 18, verse 1, where we read that about that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? At last week, we saw the transfiguration, an incredible encounter between Moses, Elijah and Jesus on a mountaintop, and how many disciples did Jesus bring along with him? Do you remember? Three. How many disciples did Jesus have in his special group of apostles? Twelve. So how many missed out? Nine. And we read right here at the start of chapter 18, about that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, who's the greatest? Was it Peter, James and John who said... Hey, Jesus, who's the greatest? I mean, I'm expecting it to be at least one of the three of us because we got chosen to go up to the mountain, yeah? Or was it 
some of the nine who were thinking, who is the greatest? Because these guys have got a chip on their shoulder and we reckon that that's not the deal and we reckon actually it might be one of us and they're just the slow ones who had to go up and see, whereas we were already sorted. Whatever it is, whatever the backstory is, it is ugly to see the disciples argue about greatness, don't you think? Jesus, only about two weeks earlier, had said to them as he stood at the rock, if you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it, but if you give up your life for my sake... You will save it. And right here, right now, the apostles are arguing about whether they are at the centre. It's all about me, my special place with Jesus, my special role in his kingdom, my leadership opportunities, my benefits, my rights, my entitlements. If Jesus didn't know the tragic state of the human heart, you'd, you'd think that he'd just give up on these guys. Or maybe he'd use the same line he did in last week's talk where he says in Matthew 17, 17, how, must, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? But instead he does something a little bit extraordinary. Verse 2, he, he calls a little child to him and he puts the child among them there. What's going to happen next? Children are are different in the first century to what they are in the 21st century. Uh, we, we consider children to be equal to adults. Be, you know, sometimes we even put them up on a higher pedestal. <laughs> but back then, kids were useless. They were nothing. They were unvalued, devalued. Until you actually could contribute something, you're not really worth anything much. So why would Jesus grab a super unvalued child and bring them into the midst of the conversation? Well, if you've heard this before, you know the answer. But if you hadn't, then think, what's he going to do next? Well, now, um, you know, you, you could think that he's, he's going to say, I'm not going to say who's the greatest, but you know you're certainly greater than this child. But no, he says, verse 3, I tell you the truth, unless you turn from your sins and become like little children, you'll never get into the kingdom of heaven. They shouldn't grow up. They actually should grow down. Or they should grow up by growing down. Whatever it is, he tells them that they should aspire to be humble. They should be like a nothing kid, not a something adult. And if they're not careful, they won't even be in the kingdom of heaven at all. Did you see that? See, we don't get into heaven by achieving greatness. We get into heaven by becoming humble. And he brings the point home with the next verse. He says that anyone who becomes as humble as this little child right here, that person is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The disciples wanted greatness and Jesus showed them a little child. Being humble is where the action is. It's about being a nobody, not a somebody. Because that idea that you can stand before God on Judgment Day and point to your own abilities and achievements and greatness, that is madness. If you think that, you've invented a different Jesus who is not the real Jesus. Because ultimately, it's not about you and what you've done. It's not about my achievements. It's all about what Jesus has done for us. And that flows through to the way that we relate to others as well. Because Jesus clearly doesn't see the world the way that we do. We're on about fame and power and privilege. But for Jesus, it's all about humility. 
In fact, it's all about others. Jesus is all about others. And that's why we need to care about the weak and the powerless who are in the world, not the strong and powerful. And so Jesus says in the next verse, verse 5, if anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf, they are welcoming me. (laughs) Jesus wants us to see greatness the way that he sees it. And to recognise that success and power is very different in God's sight. So much so that when we accept the weak and the powerless, we show that we understand what it means to accept Jesus as our Lord and as our Saviour. Weakness is where it is at. I do wonder if we've missed the point at times, maybe, when we try to lobby ourselves into places of public influence. I think it's really good for our country to make laws that allow the powerless to have a voice, which these days includes religious people who have been marginalised in so many ways. But our aim is not to make Christianity great again. It's about becoming a nobody, a powerless, worthless, insignificant person, just like children were in the first century. But with this shake-up of our worldview, Jesus now turns the heat up with a very serious warning. He says in verse 6, But if you cause one of these little ones who trusts in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to have a large millstone tied around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now in our English Bibles, as is the case also in the Greek Bibles, Jesus switches from talking about children to now talk about, what does he say? Little ones. Littlies. And in particular, he's talking about the littlies who trust and believe in Jesus. And I think that that's because Jesus is now speaking of all people who believe in him as littlies. And what that means is, that everyone who is in this room or is watching on the live stream who trusts in Jesus as Lord, you're a littlely. All believers are littlies. It's it's almost like you could imagine Jesus is there with his disciples. He's chatting to his disciples and he's talking about the child and being great and everything like that. And he, as as they kind of, um, he breaks the third wall as he looks into the camera and says, any of you who... Do anything to hurt my littlies here, my, my little ones. Watch out. I think that's what's happening there. We are littlies. Littlies who have nothing to contribute to our salvation. Nothing to bring. Nothing to earn us a place in the kingdom of heaven. We're just littlies who are vulnerable, weak. We're, we're fragile. That is who we are when you're a follower of Jesus. And that's why Jesus warns people not to cause Christians to fall into sin. It would be better for you to go scuba diving without a tank or swimming with concrete boots. That would be a much, much better day for you than if you do something to cause one of Jesus' littlies to sin. Because that's how serious sin is. And that's what the world tries to do. And so we see in this next verse that there is a contrast between the world and between the littlies. 
the world that stands against Jesus and the littlies who are Jesus' followers. And so Jesus says, what sorrow awaits the world? Because it tempts people to sin. Temptations are inevitable, but what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting? Anyone who tries to tempt a follower of Jesus, one of his littlies, then, well, that person's looking down the barrel of a whole lot of future sorrow. Because Jesus says, of course, that it's normal for us all to be tempted. It's part of life. But if someone deliberately leads a believer astray, that is dangerous. Leading a believer astray is dangerous. Which means that the Pharisees and teachers of religious law who have rejected Jesus as Messiah and are trying to shut down his movement and eventually to try and kill him, they are really in danger. Because they are really trying to go after the littlies. Those champions of the Torah, they're leading the littlies away. And they better watch out because sin is very serious. It's this serious, verse 8. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better to enter eternal life with only one hand or foot rather than to be thrown into eternal fire with both of your hands and feet. Uh, Sin is so serious because hell is so serious. The, The eternal fire of God's judgment is so utterly horrible that it is worth doing anything to avoid it. Now, you know that Jesus is not saying that we should literally chop off our hands and our feet. Okay? Um, if that was the case, then the, I assume that most of us would not have any limbs, right? Because we've all struggled with sin, right? And so the right way to read the Bible is not to take Jesus literally here. He, he is actually using hyperbole. He, he's deliberately using a form of English or Greek, you know, of, of saying, listen, it's that serious, but what does that mean for us in, on the ground? If there's something in your life that's causing you to sin, you've really got to take it seriously. You know, if alcohol causes you to sin, then stop drinking it completely. If you can't have one or two drinks and stop and that's the end of a good night, then get your alcohol and tip it down the sink. If you can't speak to others without slandering them, no, how so? Oh, you heard about so and so? Yeah, 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 yeah. Here comes the slander, Wooshka. If you can't speak with that, that next thing which pulls them down, don't talk about others. Talk about other things. If you're tempted to look at inappropriate things on your phone when you're alone in your bedroom, then get an alarm clock and charge it up in the kitchen. You know, I mean, what are the things that we're going to do to cut our arms off and our legs off that have. There are so many other things that you could brainstorm about ways to do this. The point is we need to treat sin seriously. We need to take sin seriously, which is what verse 9 says as well, which mentions hell. It says if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better to enter eternal life with only one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. But then Jesus gives another warning to people who might treat littlies the wrong way. Verse 10, he says, Beware that you don't look down on any of these littlies. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels are always in the presence of my heavenly Father. 
So again, it's like he is speaking to the non-Littleys. He's speaking to the world now. And he's basically saying, if you look down, if you, the world, the Pharisees, whoever you are, look down on Christians, I tell you what, you have misread the situation seriously. Because you are mocking the people that God the Father loves. You have picked the wrong side of this fight. Don't speak badly of Christians. Don't mock Christians. Don't persecute Christians. And the reason he says it to them is, it's because those Christians, those littlies, are already in the presence of God the Father in heaven as angels. Now this is a bit of a tricky verse. I think what it means is saying that because we are now, we have, right now we are seated in the heavenly realms in Christ. We've been raised with Christ. We're seated with Christ. Spiritually, we now are with Christ in the heavenly realms. That's what the New Testament talks about. I think the word angels there is, is talking in that sense about, about what it means for us to be, the little is, to be with the Father in heaven now. We are seated with Christ we are in church, in the heavenly church now. Now, is that the is that, uh, that could be the answer. I think it works. But the point is, we are with the Father and he loves us. And so don't pick on the Father's kiddies because when you do, you're picking with the wrong guy. And the reason is that our heavenly Father is devoted to his littlies, to you and to me who love the Lord Jesus. You want to know how devoted he is? How obsessed he is. You might have heard this story before. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others on the hills and go out to search for the one that is lost? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he will rejoice over it more than over the 99 that didn't wander away. And in the same way, it is not my heavenly Father's will that even one of these little ones should perish. That is how much each of these littlies matter to the Heavenly Father. Each of the hundred sheep in his flock is individually valuable to our Heavenly Father. God doesn't play a numbers game. He throws strategy out the window. He just loves every little one of us that much. Every little one that way. And that is why you are a mug if you try to cause one of God's littlies to sin. You're picking a fight with God the Father. They're in God's own flock, named, numbered. And you think he'll be okay with you tempting them to drift away? We can't read this without thinking about Ezekiel 34 and about the lost sheep of Israel and the father is the shepherd and the son is that You can't think about this passage and not have that in your mind, about the good shepherd. And because of that also, if you're in the first century and you're trying to pull the, shepherd, pull the sheep apart as a Pharisee or teacher of the law, watch out. Because sin is serious. Because sin is serious, it's loving to stop people from sinning. It's loving to stop others from sinning. When we try and help others stop sinning, we can easily be inclined to think that we are proud. 
or we are good. Well, I'm, I've got this all under control, not you. And, you know, I'll sort you out and I'll help you along, but, you know, won't I feel good about it? If you think that, then you've completely missed the point of this chapter. It's about humility. It's about being a child who can't contribute. That is what winning looks like. And so, as a humble, humiliated, literally, what do you do when you see someone else who's sinning? Maybe sinning against you. Jesus says, if another believer sins against you, verse 15, go privately and point out the offence. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. One on one, not publicly. In this world of name and shame culture, where if you see someone who's parked incorrectly, you take a photo of it and upload it to the Jamboree What's Happening page, you know. That is not our gig as God's littlies. We don't do the name and shame cancel stuff. What we need to do is we need to point out sin personally and privately. And why? So that they will confess it and repent. That will be wonderful. And if they do that, if they listen and confess, you have won that person back and it's tick, mission accomplished. But what if it doesn't work? Well, Jesus has given us a system. And here's the second step. Verse 16. But if you're unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. Stage two is go back and talk to them again. Bring along one or two others. Uh, It may be that the reason that you do that is so that the other two can say, well, we agree with the first guy. You really do need to take this seriously and you need to repent. Or it could be that the other two there are just to witness the second round where the guy says, look, you you really need to repent and take this seriously. I'm genuinely concerned about your spiritual life. Hopefully that's enough for the person to say, whoa, okay, yeah, it's not just a thing between me and you. It's It's something I need to take seriously. But if they don't, then, says 17a, if the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church then that's what we do we stand before the church and say we are really concerned about our dear brother or sister and we want you to know that they are acting this particular way and so will you as a church back me when I go back to that person and say you really need to repent well if they say yes you go back Then the next step is if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. Basically treat them like they're not a believer. They're not a little anymore. It sounds pretty full on. And it is really full on. But this is what you do when you take sin seriously. And when you love someone enough to lead them to take sin seriously. You know, it's, it's not so that we can say, oh, well, how good are we? Not like that at all. At the end of the day, expulsion is a last resort. A last resort. And it's done so that we will encourage repentance. Because if they repent, they'll escape the fires of hell. 
This is how a loving community should operate. Private first, so that they will repent. And when we do this, we will do it with the authority of Jesus himself. Verse 18, he says, I tell you the truth, whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. Whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. We have already been given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. What is it that unlocks heaven's gates? It's the gospel of Jesus. We've got that. And these keys, they are the word of God that we hear in the Bible by his spirit. And if we use the word of God to lead someone to repent, then when they have repented, and then we can tell them that they are forgiven. We have the authority to do that. What's more, verse 19, Jesus says, I tell you the, this, if two of you agree here on earth concerning anything you ask, my Father in heaven will do it for you. For where two or three gather together as my followers, I am there among them. See, when it comes to displaying the authority of God in situations where we call someone to repentance and then declare God's forgiveness to them, Jesus is with us. He is with us as we declare forgiveness. God is with us. Emmanuel. We in the power of the Spirit and the authority of the Scriptures declare someone is guilty of a sin and then when they repent, we say, you are forgiven of your sin. We're not just doing that, well, this is what I think. I don't know what God thinks. No, you're doing it with the gospel. So you are doing it with authority of God. Jesus is in your midst with you. And that is how important repentance is because Jesus turns up to make sure it happens. When we do this, we need to see that loving another person is the reason we ask them to stop sinning. It's easy for us to say, well, it's not my business and it might backfire on me and people might call out my own sin and I'll look bad because, yes, I, they are slandering a lot, but I must say I have slandered someone before a few times too and maybe I shouldn't say anything and maybe I shouldn't judge others and all of that. Jesus is saying, if you guys are going to take sin seriously, you will call it out. You'll risk that. You will judge others, not to be judgmental, but you'll judge others so that you'll recognise their sin, tell them their sin, Lead them to repentance so that they might then be restored and no longer be considered to be an unbeliever. I find this hard. I don't like conflict. I don't like telling people that they're wrong because I think in my insecurities you're going to say, well, yeah, but what about the time you did this or you said this or you were there or you whatever? I don't want... It's easier. I just keep my head down and don't say anything. But that's not loving. If we are real about our love for one another, we will lovingly and privately correct each other of our sin. And if we really believe in the power of hell, in the, the, the fires of hell, eternal punishment, eternal judgment, we won't just say, oh, well, let them go see how they turn out. We'll actually say, I love you this much that I'm going to risk things to say to you, you need to repent. If we're going to do that, we need to be humble. Which brings us back to the start. And what's more, if we are humble, we'll then be ready to forgive. Because that comes with all of this. That's the last little bit that we look at as we come to the end of our chapter. This question is what pops up in Peter's mind now as he hears this. He says to Jesus, how 
often should I forgive someone who sinned against me? Seven times would be all right, wouldn't it? I mean, it's a good question, isn't it? Anytime someone says to you, I'm sorry, then when you say, I forgive you, it's costly. It is costly to forgive someone. So when someone says to you, I am sorry, what's the right response? What should we actually say? I'll tell you what we normally say. Oh, don't worry about it. Yeah, don't worry about it. It's fine. Or we might say, nah, yeah, it doesn't matter, doesn't matter, doesn't matter. I think it's a really unhealthy, unhelpful thing to say to someone when they say sorry to you, when they say sorry to me. Because obviously it does matter to them. And it is a thing. Because they have humiliated themselves by apologising to you and, and just sticking it out there to see whether you're actually going to, give, going to forgive them at all. It's a risky thing for them. If you say, hey, don't worry about it. It's like, oh. Uh, three years ago almost, a, a guy called me out of the blue. Uh, he found my phone number on my website. And it turns out he knew me from when I was in year seven at school. He was turning 50. He had a teenage child who was being bullied a lot. And it brought him back to his years, back in the 1980s, when he used to bully me. And somehow he tracked me down interstate and thought that he needed to ring me up and apologise. Now, God in his kindness had basically erased most of that memory. I kind of remember him, and I remember they weren't fun years, but and there weren't specific details. But for him, it was big. Back in 1983 or 4, or I don't know when it was, a long time ago, we were little. And Anyway, he rang me up to say, Jody, I want to say sorry to you. Now, it's a bit embarrassing. It's pretty full on when someone does that. My temptation was to say, oh, don't worry about it, mate. Oh, yeah, 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 whatever. It's okay. But I actually thought, Jody, don't say that. Don't say that. You need to say, I forgive you. I forgive you. That was probably, that's the loving thing for me to say. Now, it wasn't so hard to do that because I could hardly remember what happened. But what if he had done something that had really, really hurt me? And he came to me and said, oh, will you forgive me? It's like, I forgive you. What if he does it a second time? Oh, sorry, I did it again. I hurt your child again. I forgive you. How many times do you do it? Jesus says, no, nah, seven's not enough, mate. Seventy times seven. Nearly 500 times. And if, you, if you're still counting when you get over 400, then <laughs> just stop counting. We just need to keep forgiving over and over again. Because if you know what it's like to have been forgiven by God, if you really know what it's like for, for your sin to be so great and for him to say, I forgive you, if you really know that, then no matter what anybody's done to you, you will, as though it will be hard, not, you know, it'll be hard, but you will say, I forgive you. And I forgive you again. And I forgive you again. And you've come back again. And I forgive you again. 
To make the point, Jesus told a story. Verse 23, he said, The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. He's, it's tax time, his accountant said, you've got to taught, sort out your bad debts, mate. And then, verse 24, in the process, one of his debtors was brought in and who owed him millions of dollars. Now, this, this person owed him a huge amount of money. It was impossible for him to pay that back. And so, verse 25, he couldn't pay. So the king ordered that he be sold, along with his wife, his children and everything he owned, to pay the debt. Now, the point is, even if he sold all of that stuff, it still wouldn't be enough to pay the thing back. But it's like, well, you owe it to me and I'm going to do what is right. I'm going to liquidate you, even though I won't get enough money out of it, because that's justice. That is fair. But in verse 26, the man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me and I will pay it all. It's a bit silly because he can't and he never will. And it doesn't matter how long his patience is, he'll never get enough cash to pay back those millions of dollars. But he just basically says, help, have mercy on me. And what does the king do? Verse 27, he was filled with pity for him and he released him and he forgave his debt. He wrote it off. He said, mate, don't, don't promise to be able to pay it back. You'll never pay it back. I'll write it off. It's a bad debt. It's a big bad debt, but it's a bad debt, so go. It's a beautiful picture of mercy and grace. All this servant could do was beg for mercy, and he got it. He was given it. The king forgave his debt completely. His debts were many, but the mercy was more. So this guy, he thinks, terrific, I don't owe this massive debt I can't pay anymore. So maybe it's time for me, instead of being in the negative, to start to get into the positive. How can I do that? Oh, I know. Some people owe me some cash. Ah, verse 28, when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him just a few thousand bucks. And he grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. Pay me now. It's only a few thousand bucks. It's not a couple of million. And so his servant says to him, his fellow servant, he begs him for just a little more time. Be patient with me and I'll pay it, he pleaded. What do we expect to happen? We expect that guy to say, Ah, I remember. I just asked. The shoe was on the other foot. What happened to me? No worries, mate. Off you go. Be free. Be forgiven. But instead, verse 30, when his creditor wouldn't wait, he had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. He had been forgiven so much, but he didn't have it in himself to forgive that. Well, news gets back to the king. The king who forgave him wrote off that multi-million dollar debt. And verse 31, we read that when some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king, told him everything that had happened. And the king called in the man he'd forgiven. And he says, you evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. And he says to the servant, shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? And it should be at that point that that guy says, 
Ah, uh, oops, ah, uh, yeah, or ah, uh, what, 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 what? All he wanted was his cash. And now all he wanted was justice, even though he'd been shown mercy. And so the king who showed mercy was now going to show justice and judgment and punishment. Verse 34, the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he paid his entire unpayable debt. The merciful king became an angry king. The one who showed such extraordinary mercy and grace was now displaying anger. He now tortures this man in prison until he can pay his debt back, which would never happen. The man now sentenced to eternal torture in prison is sentenced by the same king who showed the kind mercy. It's the same king. Can you see that? And so Jesus says with this line, that's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. The same father who loves his lilies so much that he will leave 99 behind to go and track down the one. The same father who who was like the king, who, who forgave that debt when the person asked for mercy and he was filled with pity. The same one tortures the man forever. They're both there. It's not a split personality. It's the one personality. Justice and mercy. If you, can't believe, if you can't forgive your fellow believer, if you're a follower of Jesus and you can't forgive your fellow believer, then are you really forgiven? Do you really know God's forgiveness? Have you really understood it? If you have hate in your heart for a fellow believer, then I wonder if you actually know Jesus at all. And if that's the case, you're in a very dangerous situation. Because you are heading for punishment and torture in jail for forever. Friends, we know forgiveness. And so we must show forgiveness. I've spent time with people who, who have not yet been forgiven by God. People who are unbelievers. I suspect you may well have as well in different walks of your life. They don't know that divine forgiveness from God. They don't know what it's like to be set free from eternal punishment in hell. They don't know that forgiveness. And how do I know that's the case? It's because they just do not have it in themselves to forgive others. I've seen it. It's like, I hate that person. I will not forgive them. I will not be reconciled to them. It's not even an option. No, never. Forget it. Don't ask me. Don't, don't send me there. I don't have it in me. And I see that and I think you're right. You don't have it in you. It's because you've not been forgiven. They will go through life deliberately walking, crossing the road to be on the other side of the street so that they don't have to look that person in the eye till they die. Why? 
Because they don't understand forgiveness. But if you've been forgiven by Jesus, you do. So why do you cross to the other side of the street? Why won't you talk to that person? Why won't you be reconciled with that believer? We in our community here at Jamboree Anglican are very blessed. We have a wonderful harmony and unity here, but I wonder if there are relationships here that still need to be reconciled. We need to put reconciliation first in our community. If you've had a disagreement with somebody, don't sleep on it. Sort it out. It's better for you, it's better for them, it's better for us. It's also better for the world. Because I think the world will see the way that the littlies love each other, the way the littlies forgive each other. And they will say, I want to become a littlie. I want to become a follower of Jesus. Because if you do forgive others when they've hurt you as hard as it is, then you show the greatest example of what it means to truly know the forgiveness that only God can grant us. And a forgiveness that came at the most costly forgiveness of debt anyone could imagine. The cost that came from God's one and only beloved son.